This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week, we have an episode of Kaltenberg Edits to News, an NBC News and Commentary series starring H.V. Kaltenberg. This episode originally aired on February 24th, 1941. Kaltenberg was a newspaper reporter and radio commentator for CBS and NBC from the 1920s to the 1950s. Radio legend Edward R. Murrow called him the Dean of Radio Commentators. He also became well-known to movie audiences by portraying himself in three movies as well, including Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Babe Ruth Story, and The Day the Earth Stood Still. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast. And thanks to those of you who've already donated. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Be sure with Pure. The Pure Oil Company presents H.V. Kaltenborn. Everybody knows electric refrigerators need to be defrosted now and then for efficient economical operation. But maybe you didn't know your car needs defrosting too. It's time right now to get winter-weary lubricants out of your car and get it back in shape for summer driving. The way to do it, the safe, sure, economical way, is Pure Oil's complete bumper-to-bumper changeover service. You get the seven vital services your car needs for summer. Pure Oil's famous solvonized tune-up, a change to fresh summer-grade Tyolene motor oil, fresh lubricants for transmission, differential, chassis, front wheel bearings, and complete radiator service. And that's not all. Pure Oil dealers are now making an unusual offer with bumper-to-bumper changeover service, a bargain bonus for giving your car the services it needs. You'll hear about it later in the program. Listen for the details. And now, H.V. Kaltenborn. Good evening, everybody. The convoy issue is dominant in Washington tonight. The president discussed it with his war cabinet, and there are several indications of early action. It is a safe guess that the president will not make any flat announcement that he has decided upon convoys. That would be undiplomatic and would unnecessarily challenge antagonism. Too many people remember that the president once said, convoys mean shooting and shooting means war. The statement may not be wholly correct. There has been a lot of shooting in recent years without any formal declaration of war. 
and there has been a good deal of convoying that did not result in shooting. I inquired at the Navy Department in Washington the other day on just what happened when we convoyed during the World War. We were in that war for a year and a half and convoyed two million men and all their supplies across the Atlantic. Throughout that entire operation, we did not lose a single regular warship while engaged in convoy duty. One Coast Guard vessel was torpedoed while acting as escort to a convoy. One converted yacht was torpedoed when it left its assigned position as flank guard of a convoy. This means that throughout the World War period, when we convoyed an enormous expeditionary force and the constantly increasing mass of supplies across the entire Atlantic, not one of the destroyers or other regular warships engaged in convoy duty was sunk while asking, acting as escorts to convoys. The President's statement that convoys mean shooting and shooting means war should be read in the light of that experience. Recent dispatches from London indicate that Britain may lose the Battle of the Atlantic unless we can find some way to cooperate in getting war materials at least part way across the Atlantic. Various American correspondents writing and speaking from London during the past week have expressed far more concern over submarine sinkings than over anything that has happened in Greece. There is general agreement among American military experts that events in the Mediterranean area are still a sideshow. They are unanimous in emphasizing that Great Britain's greatest danger of defeat lies in the Atlantic. For the first time, there is emphasis in Washington on the loss of cargoes as well as on the loss of ships. In London, the United States Embassy revealed this morning that it had lost trucks, office supplies, and diplomatic pouches as the result of a recent sinking in the Atlantic. In Washington, reports circulated in congressional circles this afternoon that 40% of American aid to Britain is now being sunk in the North Atlantic by German submarines, raiders, and aircraft. Britain has had to give up weekly announcements of the tonnage sunk for fear of the effect it was having on British morale. The decision by the United States to cooperate in getting war material to Britain would probably not involve our escorting British ships all the way across the Atlantic. In all probability, it would first involve nothing more than a development of the Western Hemisphere Neutrality Patrol. The United States has warned belligerents to keep out of the waters of the Western Hemisphere. We can make that warning effective by the use of the United States Navy. We could, for example, patrol the route from American ports to Halifax, Nova Scotia, so effectively with patrol bombers and warships that submarines and surface raiders would have little chance of going undetected. We could do the same thing on the route between American ports and Greenland, which is clearly in our declared neutrality zone. We could do the same between American ports and Iceland, which many geographers consider is also belonging in the Western Hemisphere. If we did no more than that, we would lighten enormously the burden of the British Navy. Our own Navy has worked out detailed plans to do all these things. It stands ready to go to work tomorrow. It remains for the President to give the word. Several prominent members of the administration 
are becoming impatient over the president's failure to act. They are saying privately what Representative Luther Patrick, Democrat of Alabama, said on the floor of the House this afternoon, pointing out that the United States has voted $7 billion for war aid to the democracies. He added, shall we see that go for naught and be strewn all over the bottom of the ocean? Davy Jones' locker is no place for the sweat and blood and bone of the American people. The president himself told his press conference the other day that American ships are entitled to protection against attack in all oceans of the world. He has just opened the Red Sea to American ships. Italy and Germany have indicated they will sink American ships that try to ply the Red Sea. In the face of this threat, it seems unlikely that the president can permit American ships to enter the Red Sea without providing them with suitable protection. Mayor LaGuardia of New York is chairman of the Joint Canadian United States Defense Board. In that capacity, he is supposed to know something about the defense plans of this administration. He told the Canadians in Ottawa the other day that Canada and the United States intend to defend the safety of their ships not only in coastal waters, but in all Atlantic waters extending 1,000 miles out from the western seaboard of Canada and the United States. Now a man in that important, responsible official position can't make that kind of statement in Canada unless it is true. We can get an idea of what this means when we remember that it is only 1,600 miles from Newfoundland to Ireland. White House Secretary Early indicated this morning that Mayor LaGuardia was only repeating what has been said before. He emphasized that he was talking about neutrality patrols and not about convoys. This is the best evidence that the White House is shying away from the use of the word convoys. But if you will ask a Navy man to explain to you the difference between a convoy and a neutrality patrol, he will probably tell you that a well-conducted neutrality patrol is the most effective form of convoy. But since the president hasn't associated neutrality patrols with shooting and war in the public mind, he will probably do nothing about convoys and something about an effective neutrality patrol whenever he thinks the time for action is ripe. It must be perfectly obvious to any thinking person that if we propose to keep German warships out of our side of the Atlantic by an effective neutrality patrol, we must be prepared to take the risks that this involves. So far, we have pretended that the neutrality patrol does not involve risks. But the only reason there has been no risk is because Hitler has decided to keep his surface raiders and submarines on the other side of the Atlantic. He will send them to our side of the Atlantic whenever that suits his pleasure. During the World War, German submarines sank a lot of ships off the New England coast. President Roosevelt was advised today that the nation now has only a two-week supply of soft coal and that defense production already faces serious impairment. Various defense plants have had to slow down operations because of a lack of coal. In the event, a swift settlement is not obtained by the mediation board to which the coal strike was referred yesterday, the president may be compelled to proclaim a national emergency 
and force resumption of production. He has the power to order the mines reopened. The Treasury today asked Congress to raise federal taxes to provide $3,600,000,000 in new revenue. More important, the Treasury suggested that non-defense expenditures be paired by about $1,000,000,000 a year. Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, John L. Sullivan, proposed drastic surtaxes on lower and middle income brackets and a general increase in most other levies. Secretary of the Treasury, Morgenthau, told the Ways and Means Committee that the American people are ready and willing to pay the small price of the multi-billion tax program in return for security against aggression. He asserts that $1 billion can be whittled from non-defense expenditures without sacrificing the relief or social security programs. Specifically, he suggested the CCC and NYA programs ought to be re-examined and that the economy acts might be used on farm-aid items. He pointed out that Congress provided $450 million for farm parity payments, although the budget called for only $212 million. London reports tonight that Germany has obtained permission from Spain to pass several Nazi divisions across that country for an attack upon Gibraltar. The news is not official. Germany has also said to have obtained permission to move troops to Spanish Morocco for a coordinated attempt to close the Western Mediterranean. There is nothing improbable about these reports. Hitler's victories in the Balkans and North Africa have had an enormous effect in Spain. Logically, an attack through Spain is Hitler's next step. It is less difficult than an immediate attack on Turkey, and if successful, would give the Axis control of part of the Western Mediterranean. It explains Hitler's increasing pressure for cooperation from unoccupied fronts. His troops and supplies must pass through the Vichy government's domain en route to Spain. British and Greek forces are still entrenched in positions at Thermopylae Pass, awaiting a new German offensive. The Germans must still blast a path for a sweep down upon Athens, 80 miles farther south. The lull in the land fighting today indicates that the Germans are bringing up new forces for the final drive. The entire Athens area is being subjected to bombardment by waves of German planes. Ships carrying refugees to the Greek islands are being bombed and machine-gunned. The British and Greek rearguard forces are weary and outnumbered, but are ready to make a last stand at Thermopylae. Whether they can be evacuated before being overwhelmed is doubtful. German bombings have destroyed a good deal of the shipping that was available in Greek ports. There will be an effort to carry the remnants of the Greek and British forces to the island of Crete, 200 miles south of Athens. The regular Greek broadcast, directed to North America from Athens tonight at 6 p.m., was perhaps the last to be issued from free Athens. As caught by NBC's shortwave service, it was something of an epitaph to the hard-fighting, courageous armies of modern Greece. In the main, it consisted of the reading of quotations from the foreign press, extolling the courage and fighting spirit of the Greek soldier. American, Turkish, British, Swiss newspapers were quoted in tribute to the Greeks. Then, at the end of the broadcast, the announcer reiterated his hopes for the ultimate survival of the spirit of free Greece. Listeners here in New York 
caught a feeling of despair in the voice of the speaker from Athens. It sounded as though he had given up all hope. But the Greek announcer was right when he told us that the spirit of Greece could not and would not die. Good night. <laughs>